You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. All right, everyone. Welcome to Financial Clarity for Doctors. Another day, another episode. Today, we want to dive into the fun topic of investing in individual stocks. I'm Corey Janoff, joined as always by Rochelle Vanderzanden. Hey, guys. And we figured this would be a good one to touch on, as especially in 2020, um, a lot of people have, have decided to take up day trading as they have more free time and a lot of boredom. And what better way to eliminate that boredom than starting to toy around with investing in individual stocks and playing the market, as, as some people say it. So it's an interesting topic. We're not for or against it, but there are definitely some things um, that we want to talk about to be aware of to make sure that you're doing things prudently and uh, and not potentially harming your progress towards financial independence. Um, if anything, you're, you're only helping your progress towards financial independence. So with that, Rochelle, you want to get us started? Absolutely. I think this can be very enticing for people, especially in years like this year where there was a lot of volatility and you could potentially buy stocks at a low price and then there was a quick recovery, which is not always what we see, but a lot of what we saw this year. And there's definitely potential when you're buying individual stocks to either win big or lose big. When we're looking at retirement accounts and things like that, and we're using mutual funds and other really diversified portfolios, then it might seem a little bit boring. And I think individual stock purchases can definitely provide some of the excitement that some people are looking for. It's almost like gambling. The temptation can can definitely be huge, especially when you start to see people really make money doing this. I do think that in general, retail investors or just individual investors that are buying and selling for themselves can have some overconfidence when we're making these choices about like what to buy and what to sell. We feel like we have a sense of control over what's happening and over whether we're going to do well or whether we're going to do poorly. And a lot of times we have more confidence than we really should. And I think one really important thing to think about is what are your resources and what are the resources of other buyers in the market? So as an individual investor, how much time do you have to put into research? Like how much research do you have access to? How much information do you have access to? And then you can think about the other buyers in the marketplace, which tends to be like big institutional buyers, like banks and mutual fund managers and you know, even computers are making these purchases against you or, or at the same time that you are or making those sales at the same time that you are. And I think that the, the odds are definitely stacked against you as far as those resources go. Um, there's even one like thing that's happening right now is, and that there's these high frequency trading algorithms that happen. So when something is being bought and sold a lot, like these computers can can buy something and then resell it just a little bit later for a little bit of a gain. And they're they're just taking advantage of that volume in order to, to buy and sell things really quickly. Um, so it can definitely involve some luck. Like when you do well, 
a lot of times you luck out, but we assume that we actually did well because we are good at this, because we have some skills in this area. And we tend to attribute like those those gains to, to ourselves and any losses to luck. So I think there's a lot of human nature that happens here. And we need to kind of recognize those things in ourselves if we're choosing to do this and make sure that we're not overinflating our skills or overinflating our ability to make those calls. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah, the luck versus skill thing, I think it, it, across the board, not just for amateurs, but for professionals too. Like, you know, the batting average for, for you know, professional money managers what maybe 50 percent like you know the, mm -hmm. the odds of them doing much better than just putting a broad basket in a in a diversified index fund is um you know it, it's not that much better if at all sometimes it's often worse so i think the you know not getting too confident when things go well and then also recognizing that maybe the the downside you know maybe had something to do with the your lack of due diligence not you know, pointing fingers at you, but like there, it's not always <laughs> bad luck. Sometimes we, we could we overlook some things. Like Rochelle was mentioning, the resources that you have available. You know, if you're a, a full time doctor and you've got a family, like how much time are you really devoting to investment research? Um, you know, the, the, and when you're placing a trade, like there's someone on the other end of that trade. Like you could be trading with me or Rochelle or your next door neighbor or you could be trading with a hedge fund. You could be trading with a, a pension fund manager. You could be trading with a a, an investment bank. <laughs> you could be trading with Warren Buffett. Like, yeah, a computer program. Computers execute a lot of these trades. You know, like Rochelle was talking about these algorithms. They're programmed to, you know, follow trends and, and find certain price points for individual positions. And, you know, the high frequency trading programs, you know, they'll, you know, they can actually spot your order coming in the pipeline. And if they can nab that position for a lower price and turn around and sell it back to you for a few pennies more, they make money over millions of trades in a day doing that. It doesn't really, you know, you might say it could, that's, that's a negative or a bad thing for you because you're not getting the best price, which is true, but we're talking, you know, fractions of, of cents in some cases. So it, it's not really that detrimental. Um, but something to be aware of, like like Rochelle said, the odds are stacked against you. You've got these institutions that have hundreds of, of researchers, analysts. They have access to things that you don't have access to. Like they can schedule meetings with the management teams at Fortune 500 companies. They can meet with the board of directors. They can really dive deep into what's going on at that company, comb through all their financial statements and see, is this really a good investment? for what we're looking for for our portfolio so now there's nothing wrong with you taking a swing at it just understand you know you're you're the amateur sitting down at the poker table with the professionals like you do it for for entertainment purposes not for <laughs> investment purposes it's um, like the disclaimer on the, the lottery machines for entertainment purposes only <laughs> it, it, exactly and and you could I mean, you could be very successful investing in individual stocks. Um, yeah, you, it could go well for you. You could also be very unsuccessful. We don't know. I think where individual investors um, sometimes make missteps is 
the diversification piece. You know, they they'll put their money in the big company names that they recognize or utilize. And you all know what companies those are. You're probably not investing <laughs> in companies you haven't heard of, although some of those companies you haven't heard of may actually be pretty good, attractive investment opportunities. But but the big names that you're, you know, or may not they may not necessarily be the biggest companies, but just the names you're familiar with. Maybe they are in your industry, which could give you a, an advantage. You know more about that company, that industry than others do, but um, do you know more than, than the analysts who are who are paid to cover that industry full-time and really know the ins and outs of the other companies? I don't know. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. Um, so there could be some advantages there, but, but the point is lack of diversification. You're concentrated into one particular area, um, and that area just as luck could have it, just may not pan out. Um, it, it may not be the right, wrong place, wrong time. You know, it just might not be at the the greatest sector moving forward. So that's where being diversified is super important. If you are, whether you, whatever direction you go with your investments, make sure we're diversified and spreading that risk around. Um, but just concentrating yeah. in a few individual companies has, uh, has the possibility for greatness, but also the, the, the possibility for for severe detriment. Absolutely. And I think it's really hard when you see companies that have performed really well, well, like over a long period of time, because they almost seem like a sure bet. It's like, why would I not buy this big tech company that's taking over the world? <laughs> and then, you know, maybe there's an antitrust lawsuit that's filed. And, and maybe that's the reason that you didn't want to buy that big company that was taking over the world, or at least not only that big company. Like there is no such thing as a sure bet, even if it seems like there is. It's just, it's not possible in the, in the way that the world works now, for sure. Things yeah. change so quickly. And, and in unexpected ways. Yeah. I mean, just take this year, for example, you know, we're <laughs> going about our business and then a virus comes along and completely turns the world upside down and overhauls the way, the way we work. You know, we've online meetings have become commonplace and going into an office building it, it is not a thing anymore. Like there's literally, you know, millions of square feet of commercial office space in major cities around the world that are just sitting vacant. Um, you know, it used to be a pretty attractive investment to be in, you know, commercial office space. Now, who knows? Maybe it'll bounce back. Um, maybe not. I don't know. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, it, we don't know what the future holds and we don't know what potentially could be the catalyst for changing the future. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also important to be really careful about which money you're spending on these kinds of purchases or which money you're investing in these kinds of purchases. So if we're talking about your retirement account at work, like most of the time you have a pretty small list of mutual funds that you're allowed to invest in. So you're a little bit insulated from the market. But I've heard a couple of people talk about like, oh, well, my work plan has this brokerage link thing, which means that I can get in there and then I can do more with it. And I can, you know, do some more sophisticated things and, and get into it a little bit. And be careful. Like we don't want to put our retirement savings in something that is inherently more risky. Like it's very important that we're paying attention to what the goals are for the money that you're investing. And if the goal is, 
you know, steady long-term growth so that you can retire. That's money that hopefully we're not rolling the dice with too much because we're really limited in how much money we can put into these tax advantaged accounts. And so the less, you know, overboard risk we can take, the better. So we can kind of insulate that, that retirement money, those, those pools that are fairly limited from, from that kind of risk. Yeah, I think highlighting that a little bit further is important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we often invest in these individual stocks because we see greater return potential. Like we wouldn't invest in it otherwise. If we thought that the diversified index fund would be better than an individual position, we would just stick with the index fund. Uh, but if we feel like we could get outsized returns by putting our money in this particular or these several individual companies, that's why we're doing it. Um, and you're taking – you don't need outsized returns to ultimately reach your goals. Like we just need mediocre returns. Like okay returns will get you to your final destination if you do a good job saving and a good job planning. If you haven't done a good job planning and you wake up at 55 years old and you haven't saved anything for retirement and you are going to retire in the next eight years – okay, yeah, now maybe we need to start swinging for the fences and get some outsized returns if we want a fighting chance of, of retiring in the next eight years, or we just need to re- be more disciplined, our goals. not retire in eight years. <laughs> yeah, you're working till you're 75, not 62. <laughs> like that's the reality of the situation. But yeah, like like we don't need the best returns to reach our goals. Like if you just get okay returns, you, you're more than capable of achieving financial independence. So I think the downside risk of, you know, one company doing poorly, dragging down your entire portfolio because you have 30% of your portfolio in that one company, I think that's a bigger downside risk than the upside potential it provides you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So ideally, when we're doing this individual stock purchasing, we're doing it in a non-retirement account. So something that is just a general investment account. And, you know, you're doing it with your extra money. Like we're, we're on track to meet our goals. We have a little bit of extra money. We don't have anything in particular that we need to do with it. But we'd like to see if we can get some bigger returns over a long period of time and have that investment success and build you know, continue to build our empire by doing that. And I, I think that's fine. Just let's not do it in a retirement account. So let's do it in a brokerage account, an investment account. Um, and I do see lots of people like downloading apps on their phone. And you guys know the apps. You probably know them better than we do. But that can be fun with just, you know, small amounts of money that basically you're playing with. And it, it is definitely more of a fun thing than a long-term strategic plan. But even doing that, you could potentially make some money, which is, it's kind of a cool thing, but just maybe let's not invest a whole bunch of money that we're not able to lose. Like if if it's money that you really need, then let's not be doing that with it. Yeah. yeah. And I guess I'm not completely opposed to having the individual stocks in the retirement accounts, but like mm-hmm. you said, make sure it's the excess money. If it, yeah. You know, money that we don't need. So if you're already on track to achieving your goals, if you're ahead of schedule to achieving your goals and you have some extra money that you want to quote unquote play with, then sure, let's go for it. You know, we can afford if if by definition, if we have extra money, if we lose all of it, it's not going to harm our progress towards our goals. 
So we can take some some excess risks in hopes of potentially getting some excess returns. But if we don't get those excess returns, if we get you know below average, if you will, um, returns, you know, or negative returns, even it's not going to harm us because it's the extra money that we don't really need or depend on. So that's the key. Like, are we on track to reaching our goals? If so, fantastic. Any extra money we have. We've got a permission slip to do whatever we want with. We could go on a vacation. We could give it to charity. We could, you know, go throw a big party. You know, we could throw it in Hi, some God. small biotech companies that we think might, you know, come out with some new cancer drug and hit a home run. You know, whatever. Like, it's it's all good because we're we're on track to reaching our goals. So we can have fun with the excess and, and not feel dirty about it. So that's the key, though, making sure it's the it's just the extra money that we're having fun with or, or playing around with than the money that we really do need and rely on for our goals. Like you're not going to take the mortgage payment and go to the casino with it. Like that's that's not smart, you know, even though, you know, the average American or, or lower class, um, you know, lower income Americans might take the money they need for bills and go buy lottery tickets. Yeah, that's not ideal. Um, you know, same thing with you. We don't want to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we've focused a lot on retirement savings, but your other goals are important too. So, you know, if we're focusing in on some things that we want to do in the next couple of years, maybe it's like a home down payment. If you need a home down payment and you're putting that into savings and you're thinking, well, maybe I can make my home down payment grow a little bit by investing it. Like that's, that's not how we want to be thinking about those kinds of goals either. If you have money that you need in the short term, we don't want to be taking risks with that money either. We want that to be safe somewhere that you can access it when you need it. That's not exposed to stock market risk at all. So hopefully that's just in a savings account and the money that's in, you know, your brokerage account is, is the extra money again, that we've kind of harped on a little bit, but I think that's one thing that I've probably seen more frequently is people being like, well, I have $20,000 that I don't necessarily need for my emergency reserves. And maybe I might want to use that for a home down payment, but I just want to throw it in this investment account and see what happens. Um, so that's, that's a little bit scary. Sometimes I'm like, do you need that for your home down payment fund? <laughs> so if so, it might not be the best thing to be doing with it. And I think that the goals piece, it's so cliche because we harp on it in probably every episode. What are your goals? What are you investing for? The appropriate strategy really depends on your particular situation and what your goals are. But it's so true. Like it's super important that you have defined goals for your specific investments and investment accounts so that you can develop a strategy that's appropriate to help you achieve those goals. And I, I guess it's okay if you don't have any defined goal for a particular account, but that that means that particular account is your just your fun account that we don't really have a, a rhyme or reason for or a need for. We're we're here to to just do whatever with, but we but all of our other money is earmarked for a specific goal. And if we and if we're on track to reaching our goals, we're kind of at a crossroads. Do we want to either with our excess money accelerate our path towards those goals? Or are we content just staying on the path that we're on and doing something else with the excess? And that's the scenario where, yeah, we, we can go dabble in the stock market if we want to and throw a couple bucks in the companies that we feel like could be attractive investments. But that goal piece, really, it all comes back to your goals. What are your goals? 
what's the optimal way to achieve those goals with the least amount of risk? Are we on track? If so, fantastic. If not, let's maybe re revisit this overall strategy and what we're doing and how can we get on track? We do have probably a lot of clients. I think I'm sure you do. I'm sure I do. And a lot of other folks and other people that maybe don't have advisors, but that already have a significant investment in an individual position. And I think one thing that people are unsure about is how, when, why to kind of exit that position. And I think that can be really hard because especially if it's in a taxable account, like that money, if you sell those investments and you have gains, like you have to pay taxes on the gains. It's a good problem to have because it means that you did well, that you made money, but it can be really hard to decide like if and when to do that. And I think that can also be tied back to those goals. So if you're if you're invested in an account, but it's your home down payment money and you have significant growth in that account, well, you're going to have to pay those taxes when you pull it out to make your home down payment anyway. So if we we know we're in a good position, it might now might be the time to pull it out and to protect yourself from that investment risk and, you know, just understand that you're going to have a tax bill to pay. Um, yeah. Any other suggestions there, Corey? Yeah. I was going to say this one's really interesting because I think the taxes is really the the big holdup to, you know, the decision. Selling. If there weren't any tax implications, we could just say, yeah, sell whenever and yep. we're good. Um you know, but that, you know, what's, what's your income, you know, what's your current tax bracket that you're in? If we were to sell, you know, say $100,000 worth of a, a taxable gain in this position, what's that going to do? Is that going to bump us up to the higher capital gains bracket? And we end up having to pay 24% federal instead of 18.8% federal? Like, what I, I don't know. So we really got to take a look at what are the implications, and then, and then we have a dilemma. Do we, if we are, if <laughs> selling it does push us up into a higher tax bracket, but we know it's going to help us lower the risk, and we can re-diversify elsewhere or put the money towards some other goals like the home down payment. Do we just rip the bandaid off, pay the taxes, and move on and not look back? Or do we say, okay, let's sell a portion this year and a portion next year to spread the tax bill out over two years and keep our our, our tax implication a little bit lower? But then we run the risk that the position potentially could go down in value, possibly mm -hmm. a lot. You know, it's like, and then the tax would, savings was not worth it at that point, but you you don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's like I'd rather yeah. pay taxes on a million dollars at a higher rate than pay a smaller amount of taxes on five hundred thousand dollars. It's mm -hmm. you know, at, at the end of the day, you're better off paying the higher taxes on the higher amount, all else yeah. being equal. So the other tax uh, thing that's important to realize is that in those taxable investment accounts, you also have short term versus long term gains. Mm -hmm. And if you have short-term gains, which means you've held that investment for a year or less, then if you sell it, you're going to have to pay your ordinary income tax rate. But if you've Correct. held on to it for a year and a day or longer, then you get that generally lower capital gains tax rate. So, you know, paying attention to how long you've been holding that position is also really important. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess good problem to have if you've got a mm -hmm. sizable gain in under a year. <laughs> You know, it's kind of this like, year. Maybe some people do. Yeah, they do. Yeah, if you threw some money in the market in late in March, March. Yeah. you're uh, early April. You're looking at a pretty sizable growth 
on that money. So I'm sure there are some people who did. But it, that's kind of like where you say, all right, let's take take our winnings and, and and be happy with it. You know, if you go to the casino and and put a few hands down on the blackjack table and you you win them all, all right, let's cash out and uh, and pat <laughs> ourselves on the back. We'll gladly pay some taxes. Technically, you're supposed to claim all of your gambling earnings. Um, you know, no different than your investment earnings. So you know, let's just pay the taxes and be happy that we're walking away with considerably more money than we started with. Um, so yeah, you know, each situation is unique, but there there definitely is that added element. If it isn't a taxable account, what are the tax implications of the transaction? Let's be mindful of that. Um, and if possible, do what we can to minimize taxes, but also we got to weigh the pros and the cons of the risk of, of holding onto it. Mm-hmm. And when we do have investments like that over the long term, that's when you want to start thinking about like, if, you know, if you've decided that that's something that's a long term purchase for you, it's doing well, we're confident in that company, we want to hold on to it for a long time that's when things like tax loss harvesting, which we've talked about previously, can also come in. So there's potential in these non-retirement accounts or taxable accounts that if you have a position that's in there and maybe you haven't had it for quite as long and there's a loss in it, you can potentially sell one position at a loss and then sell another position at a gain so that those losses and gains kind of cancel each other out. And ideally, like we're reinvesting that money so we're not taking it out of the market at a loss but we can do it in ways that that minimize the tax gains, at least in the short term. So there's definitely, yeah, there's so many things to think about with taxes and these taxable brokerage accounts. Yeah, not something we necessarily wanted to go too in depth on today um, mm-hmm. is taxes, but it, it is a variable uh, into this equation if it isn't a taxable account. I think the biggest thing is just the, the concentration of risk um, of, of being invested in just a handful of individual companies, or if you're if you feel like you have a well diversified portfolio of individual stocks that you've selected, just the maintenance and management of that. Like if you have a hundred mm-hmm. different companies that you're invested to, what are you doing to stay on top of those positions and do the proper due diligence on those companies to know when to exit that position or or pair it back or, or whatnot? Um, you know, we want to, yeah. as much as possible, remove emotion from the equation if we're taking this seriously. Like, if it's a play account, great. Be emotional. Hey, I like this company. I like their products. I want to invest. And, you know, I'm not going to look at their books or their financials. I just want, I just like the products and I'm going to invest. And that's usually what a lot of people do with these individual accounts. Um, they're not, mm-hmm. you know, looking at their PE ratios, their debt to, uh, book ratios, their you know earnings growth, the number of shares that are shorted in the market, number of insiders that hold it, you know all the different variables and statistics that that go along with doing proper financial due diligence. Let alone calling up the CEO and CFO to get a, <laughs> a take on on the direction the company's headed. Um, but really, you know what what are we doing to to do proper due diligence on these companies? Um, and know when it's a prudent investment or if it's more of an emotional decision that we're making. Which again, yeah. if it's excess money that's just in the play account, you know, we can uh, maybe take a step back on the due diligence and have a little more fun with it. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, that sounds much less stressful to me, for sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I think we, we're talking a lot about gains here, but on the opposite end, it's hard to know when to sell something when you have a position that's at a loss. 
you know, like if you, you sell it at a loss, you're admitting that like, you know, you made a mistake and maybe that wasn't the best pick. And, and that can be really hard, but it sometimes doesn't make sense to stay in those positions. If, if the company is changing and it's not doing what you thought it was going to do. And the other thing is that like outside of company specific matters, like the world changes fast and like industries change over time and we don't always see that coming. So, I mean, one example that you brought up earlier, Corey, was just COVID and commercial real estate. Like no one could have predicted that. But if you're now in a position that holds, you know, a sizable chunk in commercial real estate or something like that, like it it might not be recovering anytime soon. And, and it's hard to predict that kind of thing, too. But, yeah. And who knows? Like it could just be changing the way the future is. Like I... Mm-hmm. I, I think there's probably a number of companies that are going to let more workers work from home. The home office will become more commonplace and these online meetings where, you know, we don't need to have a large building and pristine location with a nice conference room overlooking the the, the cityscape, you know, clients are going to meet virtually. So we can have smaller offices, get rid of the conference room, downsize, maybe move to not the prime location in midtown Manhattan. And, you know, we can go out to the suburbs because clients aren't coming to the office anymore. We just need a place for people to, to work and it's less expensive. I don't know. Um, yeah. Uber, you know, Uber and Lyft transformed the the cab industry and, and parking garages downtown. You know, people aren't driving and parking as, as often now. They're, they're taking Uber and Lyft. Not saying you should invest in those companies. Um, it's just, it's changed the way the world works. And if you are owning parking garages at the moment doubled with COVID. It's, it's maybe not the, you know, the, the investment that it used to be. Um, yeah. we're all familiar with the way the internet changed basically everything, but made travel agencies pretty much obsolete bookstores, not really a thing anymore. Brick and mortar, everything has, has had to evolve, you know, online banking, et cetera. There's media companies, um, you know, everyone's cord cutting and going with streaming services and newspapers have, um, you know, really struggled a lot of, you know, prominent newspapers. There's still a few names that are in there, but, you know, I'm mm-hmm. sure most of you, your your local newspaper, maybe not necessarily like your specific town, but the major metro for, for your major city, you know, if you're in a major metropolitan city, what's the flagship newspaper for that for that area? They've, they're probably a, a shell of what they used to be 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, so many um, people watch their, their late-night comedy shows for their news now, you know? Like, yeah, or they who, don't watch it live. Who that coming? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And, like, I mean, there's the classic examples of, like, AOL, who, you know, was the can't-miss company in the late 90s, early 2000s, and now they don't – I guess they still exist maybe, but they're – I don't even know what they do anymore. Um, mm-hmm. Lehman Brothers back in 2008, one of the most historic and largest investment banks in the world just vanishes. Their stock goes to zero because, you know, they were over leveraged and we all know what happened back in 08. Obviously there's Enron, but that was more of fraud than, uh, mm-hmm. than, than uh, business practices I said, or, you know, the business environment. But I mean, that's could be another thing. You don't know what's going on behind the scenes that may be legitimate or not at the company you're investing in. And, and an accounting scandal or, or a number of things could, you know, derail their potential uh, outlook. So yeah. 
And I do think there's a phenomenon where like the market is trying to price in things before they happen. So if you're looking at like these things that are happening right now, like commercial real estate is kind of, you know, going the way of the, the, the brick and mortar, everything else, and all of these kinds of things, like the market is already trying to do that. So those aren't necessarily opportunities for individual investors to look and say, wow, Zoom is obviously doing really well. So maybe we should buy some Zoom stock right now because, you know, obviously this is what's going to continue happening. Like all of the other investors that are watching the market are trying to do that same thing. So it's really hard to be ahead of the curve on these trends. Corey, I think I can't hear you anymore. Are you there? Awkward. I hit the mute button and it didn't unmute when I push it again. So just leave yeah, me hanging. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's not like uh you know, buying Zoom stock as a novel idea or concept at the moment. That, but and I'm not saying you should or shouldn't invest in any particular mm -hmm. companies here. These are just examples that we're giving. Um, you know, with the whole yeah. online meetings. But it's a it's a copycat industry. If one company is successful, there's going to be others that follow. And and especially in that space, the online screen sharing. There's already a ton of companies that have been in existence even before Zoom. And I'm sure some others will find ways to, to try and enhance or optimize their programs and something else might be better or better priced. And, and Zoom may not be a great investment moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's probably tons of examples of that. You look at the like Facebook versus MySpace. They came out about the same time. And from what I recall, in the mid 2000s, MySpace, I think initially was a little more popular. And mm. for whatever reason, people decided to go towards Facebook and and that had the upper hand. You could say the same with Blu-ray versus HD DVDs, uh, which was <laughs> going to be the next, you know, way to watch videos. And now, you know, look who's laughing. Neither of those companies. It's <laughs> online streaming services. So like things can change so quickly. It's, um, you know, there's a lot of risk, a lot of unknown risks that we're not even thinking about. And those are the risks that are most likely to to get you. Yeah, it's really hard to just be ahead of the curve. But I think, you know, bottom line, if you have some extra money to play with and you want to try to hit one out of the park, like more power port to you. I think there's there's definitely some potential to be able to do that. I just wouldn't necessarily count on it. But. Yeah. If we can get the get lucky and hit a home run, fantastic. But if we strike out, it's not hurting us or impairing our ability to reach our goals. Moral of the story. Kind of a boring <laughs> one, but the one we always tell. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Anything else we should hit on here? I don't think so. Thank you for listening, everyone. We really appreciate the time. Yep. Enjoy. Have a good one. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Instagram at Corey Janoff or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Vanderzanen Rochelle or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanen. Check out all of the podcast episodes on the affinitygroup.com slash podcast on our Affinity Group YouTube channel or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our financial clarity blog at the
slash blog. Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Finity Group, LLC.